my stories. I, I, I did the stories and the illustrations. Sometimes they would send us scripts, but I throw them out the window. I happen to be a guy who does what he wants, lives the way he wants to. I love people in general, even the villains in my comics. To me, a people, there is something in their lives that makes them become a problem to others. That's how I saw everything. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we have this culminating round table and our comic book character of the month, Thor. And joining us at the round table today are Ray and JJ. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Well met, warriors of Valhalla. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding, outstanding. You you can't read Thor and not get into, you know, the language of of the classic Kirby Thor. So I got to tell you, that was a lot of fun. Yes, indeed it was. Indeed it was. And as a summary here for our listeners, the selections this month in celebration of Jack King Kirby Month were Thor. And specifically, we've gotten into the format here of going back to a Kirby classic and then looking at a more modern creative's take on a Jack Kirby classic character. We read on the Jack side of the house, Thor Epic Collection to Wake the Mangog. And this delves into work that Jack did with Stan Lee from 1968 to 1970. And then we delved into the first two volumes of Thor by Walt Simonson. So Walt Simonson's 1980s take on the Asgardian himself. And there was a little extra credit thrown in there. And that was in our Kudos Kirby reading. We had Thor, Tales of Asgard, and that selection has served as a bit of a bridge, which we'll delve into a little more once we get into our three questions. So with that, gentlemen, I'd like to ask you, what were your general impressions of our reading experience here? Was it enjoyable? Any things that were kind of odd or out of the ordinary? I would say that this has been a lot of fun in for me from two different perspectives i never read the classic kirby thors and so for me this was a a discovery this was a new thing when when simonson took over thor that's when i was at my height of reading comics and i was devouring thor at that point and so that was my only that was my only experience really with, with Thor, um, other than some classic John Buscema Thor that probably was the bridge between uh, Kirby and Simonson. So this has just been a treat. It's been an absolute treat to see the similarities and the differences between these two creators. Yeah, I was, I was impressed. I, uh, I don't know if it was an uh, artifact of just getting selected issues in the in the Kirby Jack uh, and um, sorry the Jack Kirby and and Lee run, uh, or just kind of binge reading all these at once. But I was really amazed at how well they blended together, and uh, just the general pacing and story structure that was really exciting. And I also enjoyed the 
the archaic language. I missed it a bit when it, it faded out just a little in the second uh, in the Simonson run. But every time you get a you know Thor says the nay uh, <laughs> kind of line, I, it, it made me smile. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did uh, for me too, and and that really harkens back to Jack Kirby having a lifelong interest in mythology, and had even created multiple Thor stories actually, uh, decades before collaborating with Stan Lee on Marvel superheroes. And just for a little context here, in the classic 1941 comic Captain America, comics number one, with the cover where Cap is punching out Hitler, it actually featured a backup that Kirby drew and co-wrote with Joe Simon called Murder Limited which featured Hurricane, who was supposedly the son of Thor. Next use of Thor would be in a story he entirely wrote and drew in the 1942's Adventure Comics number 75, in which Sandman and Sandy battle a modern Thor in the adventure of the villain from Valhalla. And then there was also another notable use of Thor by Kirby, and he wrote and drew a 1957's tale of the unexpected number 16 called The Magic Hammer, a story that would foreshadow what was to come. The Magic Hammer follows a man who finds Thor's hammer and is granted miraculous powers, only to squander them for selfish purposes before the real Thor appears. So with that historical context, I want to pose our first question here, and that's what makes this mythological action superhero comic, The Mighty Thor, quintessential Kirby? And perhaps when we were reading here, what were some of the influences and inspirations that either of you caught on to? Well, there, I think, are a number of answers to that question. One of them is that they clearly do share a love of the mythology. Um you know, the Simonson run is just as much or more so in love with the mythology, the Norse mythology, as the Kirby run. Um, what makes this kind of quintessentially Kirby in the in the actual Kirby and Lee ones, you know, it's just the drawing, right? You can just pull it open and it's, it's Kirby all over it. Um, I feel like Simonson does a good job of kind of staying in tune with that, but not at all trying to imitate Jack's style. I thought there was a couple moments in the Kirby Lee run that I realized that, that Lee wrote a lot of the words to this. And there's always been some dispute about, you know, how much of the wording was, was Kirby's and how much of it was Lee's. But there were two parts that I especially felt like I was hearing Kirby talk. And one is when uh, Thor was addressing the hippies uh, and talking about, uh, you know, it's not a time when, when things are tough, it's not a time to check out. It's a time to check in, right. And, and join the struggle. Um, mm-hmm. And the kind of an empathetic, you know, relation relations with the, with the youth culture of the time. And the other one I really enjoyed was kind of that moment when, um, when the recorder is, uh, they're getting ready to decommission the recorder and essentially pull his brains out and Thor uh, stops them. And he says, you know, who, who knows from whence the spark of life comes. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's this question of when does a, um, a, a thing become sentient. And those are just, to me, those are kind of Kirby like, big ideas right like he's just full of big ideas i i agree wholeheartedly those scenes that you pulled out were uh they just jump off the page and you really get a sense of this is a product of its time and yet you're still it's speaking to something that's very close to his heart so what we've got here if you look at if you look at primarily the stories that came out of the Kirby and Lee era, you've got this 
science fantasy mythology mashup because things don't just stay in in Asgard and they don't just stay in Earth. They they have this Thor is the cosmic hero of the Silver Age. Um, he deals with ego, you know, the living planet. He battles Galactus, you know, the world eater. And there's all these things, these alien races, and even the Mangog itself is a result of Odin's Odin's experience with an invading alien race. So they're acknowledging that Asgard exists on some cosmic level, but it it's still within the physical universe that that everything else takes place in. And now having through the the wonder of this podcast, having been able to revisit all of the Kirby experiences, the Eternals, the New Gods, uh, Machine Man, these are the elements that, that Kirby comes back to time and time again. So if you look at the progression from Thor to the New Gods to the Eternals, you see how Kirby is taking mythological components and blending it with science fiction of the day and going beyond just the purely mythological aspects that have been presented historically into something cosmic. I mean, when you think Jack Kirby, you think Kirby Dotson cosmic. And that's mm -hmm. that to me is quintessential Kirby. And boy, did we get a lot of Kirby Dots. It's yeah. timeless in a way. You, you said science fiction of the day. And I think that's, I mean, so you've got crazy Asgardian uh, Norse mythology. You've got super science, you know, futuristic stuff. So you've got kind of past and future there. But you also have, uh, you know, current moments, like I was mentioning with the, with the youth culture, the counterculture, you know, in there. And so he, he relates everything together in such a way that none of it feels odd or dated to me. I, I had to laugh when at, at that moment about the the hippie standing there and realized that here's here's one character uh, here, well here's a bunch of characters standing in you know what we would now think of as quintessential like 70s um you know fur, fur vests and beads and and groovy colors and all that um but they're standing there looking at a guy in a winged helmet and and uh, <laughs> you know, greaves and stuff it's like you think well which one of these is, is you know more ridiculous right right um, it's just really clever how the past and the present and the future are all brought together and blended. Well, I absolutely. And I, and I, I want to share an experience I had reading this. And then I, I really, I didn't have the opportunity before now, but I wanted to go back and revisit the Thor MCU appearances. And I remember watching the first Thor thinking, you know, what's the deal with the spaceships and, and weapons and all that? And I'm like, this is really bizarre. Because to me at the time, having not read the Kirby run, I had the um I had the the Walt Simonson run in my head. And Walt Simonson is much closer to the mythological elements than to the science fantasy elements. But Kirby is absolutely bringing in all these science fantasy elements. Odin makes a spaceship for Thor to go looking for Galactus. When the Mangog comes, you know, beating down the walls of Asgard, they're opening up with some sort of futuristic artillery. And 
now I get it. And it really was the blending of those two things that they latched onto in the MCU. And it doesn't seem so strange anymore. No, it certainly does not, JJ. That's an excellent point. And, you know, when we're talking about this confluence here of influences of the science fiction, the fantasy, the Norse mythology of the 60s, and the Norse mythology in particular, when when Thor was introduced in Journey into Mystery, it was one of, okay, look, we have our entire universe here centering around New York City. Marvel was very grounded in New York City. And what what mechanism, what device are we going to use in order to tie this Thor character there? And that is the Dr. Donald Blake character. And my, my question is, is what is up with this Dr. Donald Blake character? Was, was it purely, do we feel, a device in order to, yet though Thor is cosmic, we're going to ground him to New York City because we have Dr. Donald Blake. Or is it one of, well, maybe we need to make the character more relatable to the reader saying, okay, maybe you too could be worthy, find Thor's hammer and be, have those powers bestowed on you. What, what's your take on that? Well, ironically, I would say uh, what's up with this Donald Blake character is also the question that Thor poses to Odin. <laughs> <laughs> right. exactly. and and what donald yeah. blake the question donald blake poses to himself am i a man who becomes a god am i a um a god who becomes a man am i two entities that are merging over t you know it, it's i love that uh, how that mystery is resolved in these volumes um but i do think that like initially it's if you go back to the you know the time at which uh, the doctor was invented right in the in the first pages uh that kirby pinned of thor um which at the time was what tales of mystery is that right journey into mystery yes journey into mystery thank you um i think it was an attempt to to kind of capture that uh fantasy of the weak becoming powerful and the smart putting on the you know it's the brains and the brawn right crossover so you've got a a weak smart character who becomes a a, a mighty uh bigger than life strong character and um it's it was a little different than a lot of the things that had been going on in the marvel comics today usually it was more like fit young people um or adults getting you know transformed into these superheroes so here you have one that's that's a bigger reach and i thought that was interesting but i do think ultimately um uh, maybe they regretted that until they had to deal until they finally found a way to deal with it and it became a creative constraint that turned into a bonus yeah i think it was very much a product of what was the definition of a superhero and a superhero in that era is two identities. And whether you say one is the real identity and the other one is the mask, that's personal opinion. But the paradigm was there are two identities, a mundane and a heroic identity. And, for whatever reason, they felt that they couldn't just have stories about mythological characters. And I think the point that you brought up was very valid. It is a connection to seeing the normal aspects of the character, the worries of like, oh, will Jane Foster really like me? You know, I'm a guy who, you know, limps and 
you know, why would she ever like me when you've got a guy like Thor around? And then the the heroic aspects of, of Thor, the larger-than-life character, it's in those juxtapositions that that's the Marvel style. That's, that's the classic Silver Age Marvel, is the juxtaposition between the two. You know, Tony right. Stark having to depend on his armor in order to survive because of the, you know, the shrapnel near his heart. Um, you know, it's not till you start getting characters like Captain America, where he's just kind of always Captain America, but, you know, they find ways to bring in the Steve Rogers aspect of it. Um, and I think it was good for the time, and we see that Simonson says, okay, we don't need that anymore. And they found a way to do away with it. Well, in fact, Simonson has a good poke at it, right? So when yes. Thor when <laughs> Thor's disguising himself in street clothes, you know, they say, Well, just put on these glasses. It worked for the other guy, right? And he puts on these thick rim glasses, and we even get a, a little drop in of what's clearly supposed to be Superman in the story. Yes. <laughs> Which was Clark a hilarious Clark and Lois in the background. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. But I do think that two things there that, that made me that you made me think about when you were talking about secret identities and the kind of physical impairment to um, there's a little bit of an ugly side to like if you go back to fifties and sixties fiction where um, you know, the perfect specimen b- being a healthy young man being healthy and fit and not in any way disabled or whatever was um was somehow equated with like your your ability to perform in society your status Mm -hmm. and so like when when you have the doctor worrying like how could a girl love a cripple basically you know that's much more of a kind of 50s and 60s attitude um that that we grew out of and it's kind of nice to see you know that actually in these comics was growing out of that but then towards the when i said it actually became like a bonus or a benefit to the stories in the simonson run especially there's a couple times when we need dr blake's medical expertise or his medical you know his pull his connections and um that redeems the human side of the character and makes it worth having and and even the trick that they play where in um, basically transferring the curse from odin to beta ray bill that that where a downgrade for him is kind of an upgrade in a way he needed to be more human humanoid i guess but he Mm -hmm. needed to be a little more physically human um for reasons right Right. but yeah it's just very clever the whole thing has been played with in a very clever way started out i think as a clunky mechanism um that was just an artifact of its time and then it became an important story element right and that that paradigm that that stereotype of the uh person with a disability then becoming super heroic already Mm -hmm. existed in the form of captain marvel jr um captain marvel uh when when billy batson shared his power with i can't remember the the human counterpart that becomes captain marvel jr you know he was somebody who um had a disability with walking he was always using crutches but then when he became captain marvel jr he was the the epitome of you know physical the physical specimen and so you you have that paradigm already so they're tapping into um they're tapping into themes that that did exist now the formula that started with thor was very much 
a super powerful being dealing with criminals and science fantasy elements. I mean, the first story with Thor, you're fighting the rock men of Saturn or something mm-hmm. like that, right? So it's his very first encounter has very little to do with the mythological and everything to do with the the stereotypical, you know, Silver Age comics. And those old stories, those old backup stories even had the pacing of a um, a classic Silver Age, you know, Superman comes and saves the day, but you needed, it, you know, because he's so powerful, you needed that element of, oh, I, I let go of my hammer for 60 seconds, and I've reverted back to Dr. <laughs> Donald Blake. Now what? You know, so it, it added tension. But even Kirby and Lee grew past that to the point where they were both valid characters. You knew... You needed to have times when Dr. Donald Blake's skills were of the utmost importance. And then there were times when you needed Thor's strength and abilities. Um, and they tried to, you know, there's the tension there of going back and forth between the two. And it's a great um, philosophical and um, uh, debate about who am I, <laughs> right? And they just handled it so well. JJ, that's an excellent point you're bringing up there. And I agree with you. They did handle it well because I was scratching my head initially with reading that first introductory issue of Thor and going, okay, where are we going with Dr. Donald Blake? And it's not until you get later into the series and the other stories that are developed where you say, oh, okay, now I'm understanding where they're trying to go with uh, Donald Blake. But the the, um, itch that needed to be scratched with respect to Kirby's love of mythology. And I think truly his desire to want to build up this mythos of Asgard and really plug into the, the you know generational mythology here of Norse mythology was this smaller series, Tales of Asgard, which were essentially maybe four, six pages max of short story material, supplemental material that was put into Journey into Mystery. And then when Thor got his own title, would then also be put in as supplemental material there into Thor. And through Tales of Asgard, they were able to build up the mythology, the Kirby vision of what the Thor mythology should be. And all of the Asgardian characters from the Warriors 3, to Lady Sith, to Hela, you name it. And that... I think provided an effective bridge to what we then get here in the to wake the Mangog story arc. So it's quite the evolution. And, and even the artwork I noticed after, you know, taking in these, the earlier Thors to then what was being done on tales of Asgard. Although yes, it's Kirby. There's no doubt about it. I think it's a more refined artwork that is done over in Tales of Asgard because Jack is having to observe panel discipline and the inclination when you're given a smaller amount of pages is to, oh my gosh, we have to include more panels now, right? Jack does the exact opposite. He goes to an initial big splash page and then he has no more than four panels on a page for these short stories. And these panels are jam packed with incredible visual storytelling, which I think ultimately 
serves to wake the Mangog and all of those later Thor stories extremely well in that Thor evolution in embracing that North mythology and then bridging that gap of the journey of Dr. Donald Blake. Well, the one thing that the tales do, as you clearly pointed out, is they expand the personas that Jack and Lee can uh, tap into for the stories. Balder, the Warriors 3, uh, Heimdall. Um, you're learning about you know Heimdall's ability, how Heimdall got his role as the... Um, the century on the the bridge Bifrost, and and learning all of that stuff gave it so much more depth. I think what's interesting was he clearly, when he did those tales, they have a more what I would call a classical, uh, primitive look to them. You don't have the super science that we see during the stories, so it feel when you read those, it feels like it was in the far distant past of Asgard. So I think he purposefully was playing that against it, saying, well, this is so much long, longer ago. And there were times when he shows a very young Thor and it looks like, you know, this, this teenager with long blonde hair. <laughs> so he really was kind of playing into that. This was so long ago, but either, before we jump into our next question, there was one point about the mythology. While it was primarily Norse, Kirby and Lee did not shy away from other mythologies. In the in the Mangog series, we have stories where he deals with uh, the god Pluto, Pluto of the of the underworld, mm -hmm. you know, the Roman god of of Hades, um, and he going to a far future where humans have mutated, and he's using them to get what he needs. Then you've got uh, scenes where they cut to Zeus. You know, because we've already established Hercules in the Marvel Universe. So, of course, Zeus is there. So now we've got, you know, Odin's counterpart, Zeus. So it wasn't, while it was primarily Norse, Norse mythology, they were bringing in other elements as well, as they felt um, it played into that. I mean, Kirby's crazy. Like, you know, to think that this would work, right? Like his... He brings, he balances all this stuff in such a way that's amazing. The cosmic, the the versus the local, the different mythologies, the science and the fantasy, and the even like you were talking about the panel sizes, like mixing up, you know, kind of traditional four panel pages and six panel pages or you know five panel with with like these giant. And he's never afraid to do a page that is um, like I'm I'm looking through it right now, and there's a giant page that's just Odin's face, and he the battle be not ended is, you know, is basically the biggest lines on the page. And then there's another page. It's just a, a crumbling city, all a whole page, of crumbling city. He never feels like he's afraid to waste space. Uh, and yet he never wastes space. You know what I mean? Uh, both in the storytelling and in the visuals. Pretty, well, pretty crazy. It is. And there's a, there's a seriousness that he, that, that they take with the story. And I think, Walt Simonson pays tribute to this in, I think it is the write-up in one of the volumes, uh, or the, the foreword in one of the volumes. Walt Simonson says, if you treat the material seriously, then the reader will be willing to go along with it. And the fact that they don't bat an eye mm -hmm. that you've got this Norse god of thunder 
fighting the Roman god of the underworld, um, and later an appearance of the Greek god of the sky, you know, at the same time, you've got a living planet and a being that consumes planets. They take it with the utmost seriousness, and you don't even bat an eye at all of this stuff being there. And And Simonson took that, and he took the same approach. He learned from it and said, I'm going to present all this stuff in the same way. And I think it, it, it's a great tribute to yeah. and uh, um, follow-up to Kirby and Lee. I agree. I think they even, uh, this is going to be a, a funny comment, but I think they even each have a, a marked flaw in these that is echoed of each other. And I'm just going to say, flaw is a too strong of a word probably, but in the Wake the Mangog volume, Mangog himself, um, you know, feels like a very cosmic threat and everything. And that's cool. But he, he very much just looks like a creature out of one of Jack's monster comics. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't feel like it totally fits the Mangog. Uh, story-wise, it totally fits just that character. And then I, I made a complaint when we were reading, and this is really like it's a silly complaint, I know. But in the Simonson run, you know, we have this alien, and he gets the name Beta Ray Bill. And <laughs> I mean, you might as well. He would never name an Asgardian pistol pack and Pete or something, right? It's like the hat. It just it really kind of just for a moment, I'm like. And it, and it actually made me think, well, we're, I, I thought maybe this character had appeared in comics before and he had just inherited that name. Nope, no, he chose that name, Beta Ray Bill. And I, <laughs> to me, it's just kind of like, I don't know, I feel like 99 times out of 100, these guys are just playing with all the crazy ideas they can think of and they make them work. And then there's just every once in a while, there's that one one idea that just doesn't, for me, doesn't quite fit in. But um that's just a that's as you know the stoic philosopher um uh marcus aurelius right uh, said that perfection uh, like a loaf of bread isn't perfect unless it has like a crack in the top of it that, that that's what makes it perfect and i think sometimes these little flaws are what actually make it better than it would be even if they even if there wasn't anything to pick on so what's the kirby leaf flaw the, the Mangog. I thought the Mangog. Okay. Like just the character of the Mangog. Yeah. Flaws, flaws aren't, I, I think um, flaws aren't the right word. It's, it's a thing that doesn't fit, an anomaly, mm-hmm. right? And I think in, the, in that one, the, the look and feel of the Mangog is just a little too much like a monster comic. Um, right. And, and you would think, I, it, you know, Simonson sort of fixes that by making his massive cosmic threat more mytholo- mythological. Well, feel. and more massive. And more massive, right? Yeah. But but on the on that same line, the Mangog itself, story wise, isn't a mistake because I really enjoyed that sense of impending doom. Right, that you feel like there is a clock running on it throughout these stories where um, the threat is moving closer and closer to Asgard, and that's true of the Mangog, and it's also true of uh, you know the demon in in Simonson's run there. Uh, what uh, his Surtur. name? Surtur. Thank you. Yeah, Surtur. So so Ray, along those lines, I, I just want to add this little spin to it so it's what you're saying for for both of these is when in doubt invoke ragnarok because because seriously that's what we're talking about here cosmic threats here's mangog here's surtur what's the issue well the impending doom that ticking clock of ragnarok Ultimately, that's always looming there. So from that standpoint, both of these creatives just latched onto that thematically to develop these epic story art 
arcs here and the art to go along <laughs> with it. And, and, and Ray, to your point with, with regard to Beta Ray Bill, everything about Beta Ray Bill is cool with the exception of, and I agree 100% with you, that corny name. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, 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 it, it wasn't enough of a distraction, but, but it was like, really, that's the best we could do. <laughs> okay, because he looks really cool. That horse face and alien look, and wielding the hammer and having the 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 Norse look there, but being really himself, very separate from Thor, but but Thor ask, I mean. Uh, again, an inspired character, but yeah, well, okay. The name, eh, all right. I, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a pass for it because the the character is really so cool. I, so I love that character. I think the name is a a hint to the reader that he's not all bad. Okay, Beta Ray uh, villain. Yeah. Beta Ray Bill is not the name of a villain, and when he's presented. He's presented with a horrifying appearance, um, you know, a attitude and a power that, uh, you know, can stand up to Thor. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is supposed to be a villain. He's purposefully playing on the appearances are deceiving, you know don't judge a book by its cover but the name gives it away i think the name beta ray bill is just a cool name it may not fit the character and but i think it just tips to the reader hey this guy's really not all that he appears to be and he's really a good guy and clearly he turns out to be a good guy and you know worthy of holding thor's hammer mm-hmm that's a good point. I also think it's just a it's a nod to like space opera and yes. pulp, pulp space, which which comes into play in the Simon Run in a different way, right? Um, and just the cosmic nature of of Thor's stories that that, mm-hmm. that Kirby set up. Yep. Yep. Indeed, indeed, and you know what we get here within uh, to wake the Mangog. Uh, the, the question that I kept pondering as I was reading this is this. Was this really the the zenith of the Kirby Lee collaboration on this character? And I happen to think it it actually is, uh, particularly in that story arc, because I think it brings all of those classic elements that both of you have just brilliantly brought to the table here of the science fiction, the cosmic, the blending of the mythology. Yeah, I know the Mangogan looks definitely looks like a, a creature, a monster out of a monster comic that Kirby did, but you know what? That's Kirby. Uh, and by the way, it's pretty cool looking. Uh, so with this, I think we get a taste of what we were getting in 68 at the height of their creative talents. And then some of the other stories within this collection begin to hint at, mm, Kirby is becoming maybe a little disillusioned. Um, and I'm not going to say disinterested, but but this is really on the cusp of his departure from Marvel and heading over to DC. Did either of you uh, detect any of those elements and maybe some of those other stories? Or do you feel that as a whole, not only the Mangog epic being in this collection, but these other stories were pretty complimentary and just as strong? I think that 
the man when i read this again not knowing what to expect when i read this i really was gripped by the mangog story and surprised at how quickly it was wrapped up but then it bled into this uh galactus story and i'm like wow this is even cooler uh because that was epic that was epic cosmic kirby right this was this was the epitome of cosmic kirby and it really was cool delving into galactus and the origin of galactus and all these other things that were going on there i felt the stories that came after that yeah they really dropped off and i was kind of like you know by the time i got to the last story and i was reminding myself by kind of flipping through it again it's kind of like wah 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 you know characters <laughs> characters that you know i actually looked them up and like they never appeared again you know like some of these the thermal man and you know the the the, the, the kryptonic man and all these other ones it was just you know they never appeared again they were kind of like throwaway characters and really there was a, a serious drop off there i actually want to go back and read the stories that directly preceded the mangog because i feel like th there's there might be a really neat ramp up ramp let me ramp try up. that again yeah, yeah. ramp up <laughs> because i did read the first volume of thor stories and i think i shared with you how painful those stories were to read uh because they were so much the epitome of the silver age of you know superhero um you know tries to solve a problem and then you know becomes depowered and now has to solve the problem again and blah blah you know it's just they were just so one and done but by the end of that first volume of kirby stuff you're starting to get okay they're starting to get into this really what's the character about and it took them a while to ramp up to that and i'm wondering if the stories between that and the magnagog stories have even more of that rich building of the mythos that that goes into it so, you know so it's a story for another time but Getting back to your question, yeah, there's a serious drop-off after the Galactic stories. I'm, I'm going to agree with you, JJ. I think the strength of this volume is right in the middle, 160 to 168, the Galactus run. Mm -hmm. um, I like the Mangog run. It it was almost like a precursor to that. I, I feel like... So I have also read some of the early Thors. I, I went through a period where I felt like, because I am was not a well-versed in Marvel for a while there and probably still am not, but I, I felt like I should go back and, and through Marvel unlimited, just try to read the comics in like chronological order as they came out on the stand, not just Thor, but like everything, you know, and man, some of those earlier stories, they're pretty painful. They just are. Um, you use the phrase one and done. And I think that's the problem there. It's like how um, classic television expected you to, to you never knew in reruns which episode people were going to see so you didn't you always had to return all the characters to like a baseline at the end of every story so that they could experience all the episodes just just pick up one and read it right and i think in the early days of comic distribution they didn't know they didn't know if people were going to be able to get a run right they just were in dime stores and stuff and so you go grab one off the spinner rack and you needed like a complete thing in that one comic but for for binge reading for like really in-depth reading for for better storytelling you need to be able to carry over ideas from one comic to the next to allow characters to evolve to allow storylines to to 
get richer and you know recur and things like that right and i think that's what we see here in the middle of this volume and even in mangog you've got all kinds of great pacing you got multiple stories going out on at once i loved the the balder and carnelia i think that's that right uh story and um you know how simonson picked that back up but just like having all these little sub stories was great and and so right in the dead center of that the galactus run so many big ideas so many crazy stories all this great pacing uh flipping back and forth between stories like you know um but wait we'll have to see what happens there uh but you know meanwhile back in new york uh you know and and all that kind of just generated so much excitement over the run and then and then towards the end it goes back to one and done comics thermal man Ulick the unleashed right they're just they're okay they're good drawings the drawings are still good but um the spark has kind of fallen out of them he's not developing any and it could be you, you could be right angus that he he might have seen his tenure coming to an end and decided not to start any big runs big uh you know overarching story ideas knowing that he he might not stick around that much longer right but yeah, they I mean, that, that is the tendency for a creative who feels that he's been massively underappreciated and has essentially one foot out the door mm-hmm. at that point to kind of hold back knowing that through some early discussions there with Carmine Infantino luring him over to DC, hey, he may be heading to greener pastures and have better control over some of the original material he would come up with there. Well, you know what? I've got to service my contract here. I still need to get my page count. still need to get paid. still need to honor the current contract. I'm here at Marvel, but I'm maybe going to hold back a little bit. And I, I, I was starting to detect that with regards to the quality of the stories here towards the tail end of this volume. I mean, these end stories are so forgettable that I, having read this like two weeks ago, um, I'm flipping through it and going, did I, did I read this one? You know, like not alone, (laughs) like, like what? Oh yeah. Yeah. I read this one because they're just, they're forgettable. Whereas some of the elements from the earlier stories are just lodged in my brain. Like I I mentioned, you know, a couple of them, there are these big moments that I, um, just even some of the looks like those, uh, the tiny people with the giant heads. Right. Um, I forget what race that was, what, what uh, alien race that was, but you know, the ones that are going to, that made recorder and we're going to pull his brain out and just, there's so many cool things in there. And it's also, uh, I noticed his collages. There were more of his collages during that middle period. Yes. I was going to bring that up. There was a couple one and two page spreads that, you know, you really started to see him experiment with the collages. And we know from um, looking at the new gods, how much he really tried to dive into that in, mm-hmm. um, in the Superman, uh, not Superman, but uh, Jimmy Olsen um, comics that he, he was bringing that in. And that you could tell how excited he was about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But he didn't... He, he keeps bringing these themes and these ideas back whenever he gets a chance. Like even in one of these forgettable comics where there's this guy with his own army that wants to put his brain into Thor's body so that he could be immortal. That's a theme that he picks back up in OMAC. So he, one and done, yes, but even Kirby's throwaway ideas are really kind of cool when you look at him and he'll find another way to turn it on its head and do something else with it. But yeah, there's a clear, there's a clear departure after the, the 
Galactus run that it's it's not the same. It it loses its sense of momentum, um, and it just kind of it's fits and starts after that. JJ, I wholeheartedly agree, but I have to say this though: that ego, the living planet collage in Galactus, <laughs> is just epic. I I would love to have that thing just hanging on a wall with that you know, li- little toaster-like mm-hmm. <laughs> thing going by. Ego, the long-hidden living planet. And, and, and just this black and white collage uh, thrown in there. And you're like, what is this? I mean, it really is arresting when you are, are going through that story. And all of a sudden, you come to that full-blown page, page 15 on, on, on that story. And you go, where did this come from? It, yeah. But it was very, very cool. Very very cool. Elements. I kind of can't believe he got away with them. You know, it's they are they are weird and kind of clunky, clunky in the way that they're just sort of dropped in and um, bizarre and a little shocking, right? And yet they they're so cool because of that. But I, I can't believe in some ways I can't believe that like uh, you know Lee or somebody didn't go like what the hell is this? You know, somebody draw somebody give me a somebody draw a page to replace this page. You know. And uh, <laughs> the fact yeah. that they made the comics, I think you have to kind of applaud the the boldness. Yeah, I I just went back and found that page, and and Angus, you're absolutely right. You know, Galactus's ship looks like a toaster in front mm-hmm. of Ego, the living <laughs> planet. But let's face it, Galactus's ship is probably the most disappointing spaceship <laughs> in all of spaceship history. It's no Millennium Falcon, right? That's it's true. not even a Borg cube. It's it's bad. <laughs> Exactly. It's a flying toaster of It's a freezer. It's basically a, a freezer that's a, a deep freezer that's moving through space. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so with regard to the Kirby run here, we have gone over our feelings on the story arcs. I, I, I know there is a, a, a big applause for the art here. Uh, but to, to kind of wrap the to wake uh, the mangog title here of this graphic novel that we read which of course had that story arc along with the galactus and the 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 one-offs for all of us here i know we read these earlier thors and do we feel after reading this that from journey into mystery number 83 and and thor's debut to then Tales from Asgard, that miniseries that built up the whole Norse mythology there. Do we feel that these stories helped bridge the evolution of Thor and get Thor to that place where then we see the character and those wonderful epic stories of To Wake the Mangog and, of course, that Galactus story arc? Absolutely. I mean, we... Ray and I both talked about how reading Journey into Mystery number 83 and his encounter with these aliens as the very first example, these one-and-done stories, to the only supporting character being Jane Foster. By the end of this series, by the end of this run, we've got a, a pantheon of personalities to deal with we've got the warriors three we've got heimdall and odin and even even you know minor characters like odin's counselor you know the guy that you know Mm -hmm. 
basically is his is um you know master at arms you know he's in every panel that is in the throne room because when loki comes in and sits on the throne there he is and you know he's like well you're you're the next in line i i have to follow your orders right and so he creates this wonderful pantheon of characters um and starts delving into the relationships of all of these to the point that he kind of forgets Jane Foster and Earth. And because really these other stories are far more interesting. And I think that's telling that after the Galactus saga, to further beat a dead horse here, we go back to Earth for everything. Everything else happens on Earth, I think, in the last in the in the remaining stories there. Um, and we're done with the with the cosmic stuff. There's none of the pantheon of characters. It's just Thor battling the Wrecker, Thor battling the Thermal Man, Thor battling this, as opposed to these great epic stories. There, there was such yeah. an evolution, not only of the character but the mythos and the the pantheon of of characters that you know Thor or uh, Walt Simonson's Thor went back to and dipped into that well, and he says, "Hey, all of this stuff worked." You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna use all of it. I'm gonna go as far as to say that Thor is boring; that he doesn't work if you don't have all these other characters with him. I mean, right. the the most quintessential things, even the most interesting parts about Thor as a character, don't work unless you have the relationship between Thor and Odin, or the relationship between Thor and Loki. You know, those those are what those are the interesting parts. Um, the whole Donald Blake mystery is resolved between odin and thor and the and that it all really was just part of odin trying to raise his son right to be to teach him things uh and yeah so just thor is a superhero you know running around new york saving people the you know but but the minute you step into all these other characters it just gets it's so rich and fantastic mm-hmm yeah, Ray, I agree 100% with you on that assessment, and JJ, I also agree with you, too, as far as the evolution of the characters concerned, and then what would be cherry-picked here when we're transitioning into Walt Simonson's run. Uh, I almost feel that at that tail end of the Lee Kirby run and that transition back into New York, you're entering back into Stan Lee's safe space. You're, you're back in New York City, New York City elements, everything happening on Earth. You're getting away from the cosmic. I think Jack was, as you said earlier, Ray, full of big ideas. When you're going cosmic, you're, you're, you're having to provide some big ideas here. Um, and not to say that, that Stan didn't have big ideas. Uh, I just think that was more of Kirby's comfort zone when, when he was able to expand out and then meet those challenges with some just mind-bending art. Whatever I put in my comments, I hopefully feel that this love of people may have been transmitted to them and help them. Not help them in any way, I'm not a psychiatrist, but just giving them another friend.